Hello, hello. Welcome back to the CTO studio. I, of course, am your host, Nikolai Walker, on the mic and in your ear, my favorite place to be. We are joined today and we're going to wrap up our interview with Will Smith, who is a partner at UBM Law Group. We are going to jump right in, have Etienne take over just like before, and we'll continue our conversation about customer agreements and clients and service providers. Here we go. So in an example where let's say there's a, 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 a business that runs um, that, that does sale, let's, let's talk about maybe a marketing automation tool or a sales tool. I am a, I am a company that uses a startups or a, I am a, a company that uses a, a, a company X's uh, software. Company X's software runs on Amazon Web Services. And this has become a crucial part of me earning business and I'm using this tool, I'm paying them the subscription, but I am now have built in a dependency on this tool's availability. AWS, one morning we wake up and that data center is had an outage and for you know a couple hours, maybe a day, this tool is offline and this company is is mad as hell and they want to they want some sort of compensation for what happened company x says well we run on aws so it you know i mean we <laughs> company the 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 company's not satisfied because they're saying oh, i don't care what you run on I trusted you for my business, my revenues, and now I've lost $500,000 in revenues because your system was out. Right. If you, in other words, hey, company, my, my offering is priced not to have all these failovers, but to just rely on AWS. And if you had this software in-house, you'd have the same risk of AWS going down if you hosted it there that I have. So I'm not your insurer against that. I'm not going to pay, you know, I'm not going to kind of cover you for that. And it is what it is. So you can, you can take that route in the customer contract. You can be kind of silent in which case, and there's always that question of what's, you know, down for an hour is then diff, is different than hour down for a week. And at some point it becomes a breach of contract because you agreed to provide this and it's become material enough that you're just literally not performing. And then it's, they can sue you for breach or you can have a specialized remedy, which is an SLA with uptime credits that says, you know, for this amount of uptime, we're going to give you these credits. And then usually it says, but if it's just sort of ongoing outage forever, at some point we can just, it's usually a right to terminate, you know, and, and maybe prepaid unused fees get refunded. So at that point, at that point, company X who uh, created the tool um, and they sign a, a whale of a client, they, this is where the risk mitigation or the, the, the uh, assertions or the, uh, whatever you call that, this is where you disclose when this happens, this is, we're not responsible. So typically company X could have said, we're not responsible if AWS goes down. Company, customer, you carry the risk that AWS might go down. Yeah, that presents an interesting uh, 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 use case. And I have a client like that. They've created a software platform that allows the customer to develop little mini apps within that platform for this specific use. And so now 
you know, the default is the customer would own those apps, but they're not usable outside of the license to the underlying platform. So it's kind of like that configuration-ish point I made is, yeah, you develop this, but you really, you know, you don't, it's a question of whether it's useful to the client outside of the, outside of the license to the platform and does it make sense for them to own it or does it make sense for the provider to own it? It depends on how elaborate the app is and how much just sort of unique IP could just be in that or is it really just associated with that platform and it's just useless outside of that? So, um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question. But the misappropriation point is more about just the customer just absconding with your IP and making sure you have clear language, you know, when they're starting to develop their own the customer saying this is our IP when basically they're stealing your IP. Right, right. And the, and the, and the answer is, you know, what, what does the contract say? And it's very common for small providers to get caught between a rock and a hard place on their large customer and AWS, both for privacy compliance, uptime, all of those things. Because AWS is not going to give them anything. And then their customer is saying, we want this and this and this. And so uh, it really depends on the offering. You have some instances where the, 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 the contract's silent to that. You have some instances where the, where the provider's going to give SLA uptime credits to the customer, even though they know that they're at the whim of AWS. There's some times where it's so mission critical that they really have actual fails, failovers into other data centers. Maybe they're on Azure and AWS, and it actually they have an RTO and RPO of X hours, and there might be a window of downtime and a window of data loss, but you know it's just going to fail over to some other data center, and it's all good, but the price is going to go up, and that's what you have for mission critical things. So if you're a customer for you know a small provider, you got to ask those questions, and it just, if it's that important to you, then you know, you're not going to get that for a $60 a month service. You know, you're just, and, and you know, trying to squeeze blood out of the, of the small providers. Yeah, so that's just, right, that's just making sure you have clear statements of who owns what, and then in some instances, you have a customer who might be, in, you know, interested in, in taking your IP, maybe they have access to the code, and you're worried about them reverse engineering it, or maybe they have access to the source code, or what have you, and you're just worried about, as between you, I want to make sure that you don't do things outside the scope of the license or the use rights, or you don't actually just take my code and start, you know, just run off with it or de start developing more IP from it or that type of thing. So that's what misappropriation is, as I, as I think about it in that case. As okay, and then erosion of the core IP? Yeah, or they're using it outside the scope of their rights under the agreement. They're letting their affiliates use it. They're letting more licensees using it. They're sharing passwords. They're all of that. I, um, uh, one use case that comes to mind for me is sometimes when we're trying to bootstrap our companies and we pre-sell a feature, so a, a large customer comes in, 
they would buy your subscription if you had this feature. Well, then you say, okay, well, well, pay me this amount of money and we will build that feature, but we're making that feature available to everyone who subscribes on our platform. And that would be an example of erosion, right? So that's what I was talking about with, with, with uh, you know, making sure that you don't grant rights in, in things that you develop for a customer that are custom, but that are built on top of your offering. And then, you know, the customer just says, well, I want to own anything you develop for me. Uh, you want to make sure that's not the case because then they own these little implementations of your offering. What does that mean? And it starts to fray the edges of your ownership. And sometimes um, it can be backdoored in a way that, you know, it's not in the IP section, but in the confidentiality section, it says we customer own anything that's derived from our confidential data that we provide you. So if that configuration involves reworking their data, their confidential information, application data into something new, then under the confidentiality provision, they could claim that they have rights and interest in what the provider developed using that customer confidential information. And that could give them something to hang their hat on and say, no, we own this. So you got to kind of look at both the confidentiality provision and the, the IP provision. Yeah, they might say, well, we need a, yeah, and I need a cut from all this subscription you're making off of my feature, my idea. Yes, yes. If you don't handle it right in the agreement and say, you're paying me not for me to build this for you and hand it over to you for you to own, you're paying me to just build it and then license it to you or, you know, provide you a subscription to it. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good example of, of where you could really, the customer could have expectations that are not in line with what you want because they're, they're saying, hey, I, I wrote the check. Yeah, right. Why am I building your business for you in that way? Even though that's really what's going on anyway. You know, if you didn't have that arrangement and you just said we're going to use customer revenue to build this widget, you know, that's what's happening. The customers are funding that development. It's just not in this overt way. So let, let's end. So the, the, the key areas of intellectual property is the background uh, provider IP, the customer IP, third-party IP, the created IP, and then the various risks associated with that. Um, one thing that comes to mind for me is a lot of times when we start, like you said almost, when you start a software project, you don't start from a blank slate. You use frameworks, you use open source tools, you use, you use, by the time you've written your first line of code, own code, you've probably incorporated hundreds of thousands of lines of code. It, as a CTO, is there a responsibility there to, you know, you, you talk about the different licenses for open source, you know, the the BSD license, the MIT license, the whatever licenses. Um, do you have any comments on sort of the exposure that comes with that? Yes, it, it, it's, an, it's an important area. And it, you know, in theory, it doesn't matter if you've licensed in private, you know, sort of non-open source code to, to, to build your software or it's open source. It's, it's something that 
has its own restrictions, and then you are kind of incorporating that into your offering and reselling it, and you need to be doing that in compliance with, uh, with, with whatever that third-party license is. So that's, that's one issue, and your customer wants to know that you're doing that and you're not causing them to infringe that third-party code base or, or whatever. And then open source adds the additional wrinkle, which is that the license itself could be copyleft and basically say that whenever you modify that code base, all that stuff goes into the open source library, and that creates, obviously, creates problems. But other than that, there's nothing inherently wrong with using third-party, you know, sort of um, tools. Um, sometimes the, the third-party tool is, is kind of a module that's almost kept intact, and, and you'll actually address that in the agreement and say, look, Anything that's a third-party tool is subject to its license terms, and you will provide those to you on request. And we will identify those in when, you know where we're going to use them because what the what the customer doesn't want is to have some third-party thing buried in there that has some license, and they're just not even aware it's there. So you usually have to kind of call those things out uh, if they're going to be sort of embedded in the in in the software, or oftentimes you have to call them out. Very good. Very good. This is uh, interesting for me uh, in terms of protecting your intellectual property through the contracts that you make with your customers and the contracts that you make with anybody who uses your intellectual property. I was just going to say one, th- one thing that, that's important to keep in mind as a, when you're a young company and you're dealing with IP IP is, you know, when you're young and you're just trying to get through things and maybe you don't have solid legal counsel and you're muddling through it, you know, muddling through it, there are certain mistakes that you make that, are, that you can remediate later and there are certain ones that you can't or that are harder to remediate. Um, and so if you, you know, if you do things wrong in a way that you lose some customers or whatever, that, that you can get past. But if you've kind of messed up your whole IP ownership, it's hard to, to unring that bell later on as you get more competent counsel. Um, and, and the same thing goes for the, each contract, each customer contract itself. If you have a, a right to terminate for convenience, say, and just get out of the agreement, and you have this re- relationship with this counterparty, if they're a pain to deal with, you can remediate that by kicking them out and terminating. But other things like bad IP provisions, it, terminating doesn't help you. It doesn't help you to move away from them. The damage is done. And so as you're a younger company, you need to kind of have a sense of this I can fix later, this I can't. I need to put some attention on this so that I don't erode the value of my enterprise and, and create lots of problems later on that, that I can't fix or that are really hard to fix. Yeah, uh, what comes to mind for me is boilerplate NDAs or non-competes or like you kind of, you, you, you just, you just kind of want, no one's really crafting it. It always seems like it's at the most inopportune time. You just want to get this out of the way, you know, and then you download something from some place and you sign it and it's out there and it's, like you said, in some cases it's an innocuous, uh, contract. In other cases, there's a little clause in there and you're screwed if someone chooses to litigate that. 
Well, this will be the first of many. Thanks again for joining us here in the CTO studio, and thank you to our guest, William Marshall, partner at UBM Law Group. Now, if you would please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. It's available here in iTunes. Go ahead and check out LinkedIn, and as always, check out 7CTOs.com. We will see you again next week.